we have no idea. I would, I would love to know. I, and I would waste less of my life and others would too, if we knew. So it's safe to say that today we're speaking with one of the main behavioral science superstars, if you will, Katie Milkman. And I'm very curious with you, Aline, who was what's the first experience for you with Katie? How did you first learn about her work or how did you first get in touch with it? Oh, interesting. You know, I'm not sure exactly what the first is, but her research is so sticky that when I hear Katie Milkman, I think of so many just seminal studies in the field. You know, you have the implementation intentions with the flu shot, you have temptation bundling and at the gym, listening to audiobooks and the, and the hunger games and, and so on. Fresh um, starts. You know, and then most fresh starts, of course, you know, yeah. how, how can I forget that? Every Every January, <laughs> Katie Milkman is in all the news. It's amazing, um, you know, like clockwork. And then more recently, she's pioneered the the mega study, which I'm, I don't know, the biggest fan of. I just think it's so cool to be able to take different interventions and say, you know, let's let's take this social norm intervention and pit it against, you know, almost in a competitive fashion, mm-hmm. right? Pit it against some other intervention, you know, implementation intentions and so on and try to see directly what what is the most effective? How can we get the biggest lift from different behavioral interventions? And this is really exciting new work that I I hope more people adopt. Yes, I couldn't agree more. Katie has done some amazing things. I remember the first thing I came across was her research paper you referenced, holding the Hunger Games hostage at the gym, which is an amazing title. And obviously, Temptation Bundling is a fun concept. Uh, But like you say, she's done some amazing stuff uh, beyond what you've said, referring to the Behavior Change for Good initiative with Angela Duckworth and others. She's been hosting her own podcast on Choiceology podcast. She's recently released a fantastic book. How to Change, which we're obviously going to get into in this episode. And then you, you named it. Fresh Starts, Temptation Bundling, Implementation Intentions. So much fascinating research. So yeah, really excited to be able to share this episode with you guys. Yeah, we talk about all of these things in our discussion with Katie, including science communication in general and sort of how she uh, is doing this with her book and you know what the impact of the book is, whether we expect to see behavior change um, from things like, <laughs> like books about behavioral science, um, which is a really sort of interesting meta question. Um, we talk about personalization, um, you know, whether people can find the right strategy for their behavioral problems based on the situation that they're in and, and whether the science is really mature enough to say that. Um, And then we talk about mindset interventions versus more behavioral interventions. We talk about temptation bundling, of course. I mean, what what conversation with Katie Milkman would be complete without, you know, diving into the nuances of temptation bundling? Um, And then we we really get into more recent, uh, you know, modern news in terms of vaccine interventions and the work that Katie is doing um, around that. So lots, lots to look forward to. I hope you enjoy the show. Let's get it started. Presents to Murgatroyd. Oh, I'm very excited to say welcome, Katie, to the Behavioral Design Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we're super excited. We have been looking forward to this for a long time. Yeah, I would say you're a bit of a hero in our in our worlds. <laughs> Basically, the best of everything. Oh, that is such a nice thing to say. I'm gonna play that back to myself every <laughs> once in a while when I'm having a bad day. <laughs> so I, I'd love to just jump right into it. We have a somewhat random question to start you off with. Uh, probably, you know, maybe one that you haven't thought about before. Uh, so not to throw you off or anything, but. We're sort of curious about how the pandemic has affected how we think about human behavior and and just, you know, our lives in general. And we're wondering if there's anything sort of unexpected that you've learned about human behavior as a result of the pandemic. I actually think one of the most interesting things I've seen, and and probably cross-cultural psychologists and sociologists would look at me with really big eyes when I say that I was surprised by this, because I doubt they were. 
But I have been surprised by the degree to which culture has influenced the response to different recommendations from public health officials and uh, and how much we've seen individual differences playing a role in reactions to the pandemic. Most of my research builds on the tradition that assumes basically everyone is the same people are people (laughs) yeah yeah, people are people we're all wired the same way and so we'll all respond in the same way roughly speaking and you know sometimes we find okay this effect is a little bigger for men than for women or or in eastern cultures than in western cultures but by and large I have gotten away with ignoring cultural differences in a lot of my work and I think the pandemic has highlighted to me that, wow, that was not the right assumption, especially if I want to be doing work that has policy implications, that understanding cultural differences and just other, you know political differences, which are all of the different ways that we come to a challenge and come to a recommendation from a public health official or, you know, we we need to better appreciate those kinds of differences. Interestingly, I will also say that despite that being a major takeaway, the work that I have done related to vaccines, which has been a big focus of my attention during the pandemic, we haven't seen any substantial differences in the impact of our messages based on the groups we had the ability to cut on, to cut the data on. So we did this research looking at different kinds of reminders to get vaccinated. And we had data on, you know, are you from a rural or urban environment? Are you male or female? What's your race? We had some information about your medical history. And we were surprised to see really consistent results across different groups. But I think that probably means, given the larger message of the pandemic to me, which is, wow, there's really big differences based on culture, based on background, we may not be measuring all the right variables to take that into account, which is also tough. So how do we collect those things that do seem to matter so much? Yeah. And were you able to look at political affiliation with that? No. As you may not be surprised to learn, most medical establishments don't collect data on political affiliation. And I don't know that we want them to start collecting it. I'm not sure I would feel my doctor's office ask me those questions. So I understand why we don't have access to that data. And yet it does seem likely that if we want to be as effective as possible as scientists, we should be learning more about that issue. I wonder if there's a proxy for having that that data directly, like if you could look at zip code or something and and compare across uh, what people tend to We have tried things Mm -hmm. like that. We've tried things like that. And and it may just be that those proxies are too weak and the subpopulations within a zip code who are in our data are more similar than different. We're not sure. Or it may be that the specific things we were testing aren't so sensitive to those variables. It's hard to know, but yeah, that would be in great. general, my takeaway is I, yeah, <laughs> that, that's right. It, but in general, my takeaway is I think those of us studying behavioral science probably need to recognize that it's the person and the situation. <laughs> and we, I think we've probably focused a little too much on the situation and not enough on the person of late. Mm. And to, to segue, I feel like there's one obvious thing that also happened, especially for you during the pandemic, which was that you maybe wrote a book. I'm not sure how much of it you wrote, but you wrote partially and definitely released a book. You released a book. I released a book, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's an adventure. Yes, very much so. And and so I guess the first question we would love to know is just why? Like, why did you feel like this book needed to be written? Kind of starting there. Is there any Was there anything that kind of prompted you to wanting to write a book? Oh, I love that question. So. First of all, I decided to write this book and started writing it and wrote most of it before the pandemic. So I had no knowledge, no foreknowledge that this pandemic was coming. (laughs) And if I did, I promise I would tell you and warn the world (laughs) the next time. But I am not a prophet. At the time when I chose to write the book, there were a few things that motivated me to do it. One is, honestly, I've always loved science communication. It's one of the reasons I have a podcast and that I've written for mass audiences and popular press outlets, I think it's really important because I try to do work that has policy relevance. And so communicating about that 
it doesn't have to be part of the job, but if you enjoy it, I think it can add value and I do enjoy it. I find it exciting to be able to share the insights with a broad audience so that we can see them used. Um, so a book was sort of a natural thing to do at some point. And I felt like I'd accumulated enough knowledge and enough, I will say, unique knowledge that I was ready to put something out in the world that would hopefully be useful to individuals and to organizations. So that that's what spurred me to write the book initially. I should also say I had a little bit of a secret second agenda, which is that I have felt like there aren't as many women writing these kinds of books as men. And it was actually important to me. I, some of my work looks at race and gender issues and how to increase representation. And I've always felt a bit more motivated to do the communication work in part because I think I want to see more women represented doing it. So that was a, a subtext agenda. And I did try to talk about some of the challenges that I think are a little bit more unique to women in the book. Though I hope it's a book for members of all genders, but I hope young women will pick it up and see they could enjoy being a scientist. So that, I haven't talked much about that before, but this feels like a good podcast where I can admit that. Yes, no, that's great. Well, definitely when I heard that you were coming out with the book, my reaction was, finally. (laughs) I'm so excited (laughs) to read it. I think I pre-ordered it the day that I found out. I think it's really fantastic. Um, And and I really can't think of anyone who does behavioral science communication better than you do. I think it's it's really amazing to have you out there speaking the language. That is really kind of you to say. Thank you for saying that. And I hope you liked it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it was great. It's great. Uh, it 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 uh it gave us lots to think about and lots of questions. One question, just on the topic of science communication itself, is how do you think about this translation of the science? And in terms of you know, so you you basically have to speak multiple languages. You have to be you know bilingual as a scientist and be able to speak the science to other academics. And then you also have to be able to translate that into something that the general public would understand. Um, so how how do you think about those two spheres? And if you were to take something like say fresh starts and explain it to a scientist versus explain it to the lay public, how would you do that differently? So one thing I want to say is that I I feel like the best science communication actually could appeal to both a scientist and the public. And the science communicators I admire the most don't take the data out of their communication. They still share the actual research designs and the results. Certainly not, you know, at the detailed level that a scientist would want to read about it in a journal article but it's still there. And I tried to keep that in um, my book. I tried to tell stories about the data collection, the the sort of exciting parts of it, as opposed to the dull bits. But I do think, I think readers appreciate understanding where the insight comes from, not just, here's my takeaway, that fresh start moments are moments when people are more likely to change their behavior. But what data have we collected that shows us that? Because the data is interesting and can reveal more actually to both a lay audience and a scientific audience when you say, actually, well, how we've studied this is we've shown that people search more for the term diet on Google at the beginning of a new week or a new month or a new year, that they go to the gym more frequently after their birthdays and at these other moments that feel like fresh starts that they also create goals more and goal-setting websites. I think that those very specific details of the scientific findings bring it to life not only for scientists, but also for a lay audience. So I think that's one thing. I will also say that it weighs on me the most probably when doing the work that we have faced a replication crisis in the field of behavioral science in the last decade. And in my department at Wharton, actually, there's been some really fabulous work done by um, Uri Simonson, who is no longer in our department, but is still affiliated. And he was in our department when he was doing early work on on p-hacking and also Joe Simmons. And that has shaped very much my anxieties, I will say, about science communication and desire to get it right. Um, I feel like there's a responsibility that's maybe clearer than ever to try to focus attention on findings that are likely to replicate or have been replicated that have really robust, strong methods behind them. 
and also to highlight the limitations of some of the tools that we've discovered as behavioral scientists can be useful. And I tried hard in the book both to focus on science that where I think the methods are really solid, though of course I'm sure I'm sure that I've goofed in some domains, but I, I that was a big focus for me and thinking about what studies am I gonna describe to highlight things where I I was pretty confident in the robustness to, and the methods behind the research. And then also to highlight, look, here are the limitations, here are the moderators, here are the times, you know, don't expect this to be a silver bullet that will always work because almost everything is, has limited benefits and, um, and, and boundary conditions. So I did try to write about that. I think that's important too. And it's something that I think as a behavioral scientist, we have even more responsibility to do in our public communication than a journalist would because we know the subtleties and the limits so those are things that that have been important to me as I try to do this communication. Yeah, I actually noticed you kind of like talking about Elephant in the Room in terms of often looking back in some of the more popular books or, or behavioral science books, it's also been mostly based on studies on kind of college students. And that's kind of natural progressions in the field that we've kind of, you know, started there. You know, we've come a long way, but is obviously part of what's still being done, obviously, because it's it's quite a natural thing to do. And I, I, I like that you actually talked about that briefly. Like, you know, you you cited a study that was uh, that you had done on college students and then kind of compare, like, well, obviously, not everyone college students have also done <laughs> this thing in another setting and so on as well. And and so it's just nice to also not only having to kind of knowing if you go into the, the back of the book and, and going through this research. And then finding out that it was actually done on college students, but actually having that also being told to you within the book in a more honest, transparent way, I think is, is kind of a nice thing to see. So, so kudos for that as well. Thank you. And I should also say, I, you know, I think the lab is a really important test bed for behavioral science. And I, I go to the lab often and college students are real people. Uh, but, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> but I do think uh, the right place to measure effect sizes and, you know, does, is this a small minor effect or a major effect that could really shape and change outcomes? The best place to do that is outside of the laboratory. And so given that I was aiming to write a book that would give prescriptions for people outside of the laboratory, I wanted to bring in evidence from outside of the laboratory. I wonder how this sort of strength of the science interacts with our ability to personalize. So a lot of uh, a lot of the book uh, takes the approach of, okay, here are different problems that you might have, and here are some different you know, studies that have been done in the, the literature and behavioral science. And to what extent do you think we can say that the science is mature enough to, to really say that this problem calls for solution, you know, this particular solution or this set of solutions? So like, if procrastination is your problem, then, you know, commitment device might be the solution. That's that sort of thing. I felt like we were ready to say that. And I think we do have actually often a better understanding of the mechanisms than of the value of an effect because of the tendency for this field to start in the laboratory. So I, I think we have we have maybe better knowledge of how to match a solution to a problem than of whether the solution works really yeah. well or not <laughs> at this point. And so if if I had to say one thing I'm most worried about, it's sort of, you know, will if someone read the book and used everything in the book, I wish I knew right now and could say it will improve their chances of success with change by 100% or 50% or 10%. But I don't know. I, I know directionally. So I feel better about understanding the mechanisms than the effect size. Yeah, and kind of related to that personally in some ways is the different types of interventions as well. I'm curious to hear you think or compare, you know, the traditional type of interventions that's trying to change more, call it internal states or, you know, people's, I think in your, for example, confidence chapter, you reference like growth mindset or other things that's trying to help people think about themselves in a different way versus more kind of behavioral structural interventions, kind of um, more maybe to that, we talked about commitment devices or, or something like that. 
How do you currently think about those two types of interventions? You know, I've been really influenced by work that James Gross of Stanford has done, along with Angela Duckworth, who's my frequent collaborator and one of my closest friends, on um, what they call the process model. And the basic takeaway from the process model to me is that when you interact with a temptation or an opportunity to do the wrong thing and you're trying to do the right thing, you can change a lot of aspects. Uh, you know, there's sort of a, a series of different choices you can make. You can completely change the situation so you never face a temptation at all. You can try to just change your mindset so when you face it, you have a different reaction to it. There's sort of a continuum of you know where along that interaction process you try to intervene. And their basic argument is you want to get people early. Like you don't want them to have to face the temptation, like change the situation is better. And by the way, you know, of course, lots of research says that they're not the first to say it's important to change the situation rather than the the person's reaction to it. But I think they just have a really nice, elegant model of that continuum. I completely buy it. Uh, I wish we had really great evidence for this. I've never seen a perfect test that says, change the situation and not the mindset if you want the maximal impact. It, maybe we need a meta-analysis to do that. But um, I mean, there's so many reasons it makes sense. And, you know, of course, the further along you get in that continuum from like, I never face the temptation to it sitting right in front of me and I have to use my mind to resist, it's more of an uphill battle. And so I'm I'm a big fan of situation modification when it can be done things like commitment devices, things like, you know, defaults, put less stress on the individual and their willpower. And then if we're stuck and all we've got left is willpower, then I think, you know, great. Okay, let's try to change the mindset. But I think it's a much, much tougher thing to change. And it's, you know, I think if I generally looked at the effect sizes, it seems like they're smaller. Yeah, maybe we need a, a we need the next mega study to c- compare the efficacy of, <laughs> of these two types. <laughs> Yeah, it's so tough to, you know, and one of the things actually we've struggled with in doing the kind of research we do at the Behavior Change for Good Initiative, which is these, we try to run these massive mega studies with really large participant pools. And we normally can't change the situation. We're normally using light touch interventions. And that's true of a lot of nudge research. And I think it's part of the reason that we haven't seen enormous effects. And when you think about what are the what are the effect sizes that are huge in our field? There are things like defaults where we change the situation. So, um, but it's hard to to get buy-in and the ability to to drastically change a situation. It's much costlier, so you can see why it's done less often. But but the effects are really different when you can change the situation. I think that's my read. I wish I again had the perfect meta analysis. Taking the perspective of a reader, I think most readers reading the book seems to be still that you know most people come with this idea that i have to change my way of thinking i have to change those kind of things like that's the most important thing for me to achieve my goals do you think that's still kind of what you would expect from readers reading the book or how do you think about that kind of way of looking at behavior change as a kind of a individual challenge for people I hope people come away from the book recognizing that a lot of the most useful tools for behavior change aren't about changing internal states, but are rather about figuring out strategies that will help make change easier. A a lot of the strategies I share in the book involve changing your external environment, right? Or the, the way you approach a goal as opposed to the way you think about the goal. Some of it's how you think, right? Planning is a form of thinking, changing the way you think and approach a goal. I think obviously mindset. And so those things change internal states. But even though the barriers I describe are internal, a lot of the solutions are to change your external environment, right? If you want to make it more fun, for instance, to pursue a goal. So it's instantly gratifying. If you want to use temptation bundling, linking something you enjoy with the activity, that is an external change. A commitment device is absolutely an external change. Thinking about your social structure, right? I talk about social pressure, that's an external change. Defaults are an external change. So a lot of the suggestions in the book are about fixing a problem that arises internally by designing a solution that's external. 
you mentioned temptation bundling. Let's talk about temptation bundling. <laughs> yes. Can you, uh, yeah. Well, first, you know, so th- the basic idea behind this, actually, let's nix that. <laughs> I'm not going to do this. <laughs> You're the expert on temptation <laughs> bundling. <laughs> Tell us what temptation bundling is. <laughs> sure. Temptation bundling is finding a way to make a chore more of a pleasure or more of a temptation by linking that thing that you might normally dread doing with something you really enjoy. An example I give often, and in fact, an example we've studied is linking exercise with something really tempting, like only letting yourself binge watch your favorite TV show while you're hitting the gym or listen to your favorite podcast or audiobooks while you are exercising. So those are common ways to temptation bundle. But you can also temptation bundle in other ways. So you could only allow yourself to pick up your favorite frappuccino from Starbucks while heading to the library to hit the books or restrict your podcast listening to doing household chores or only drink your favorite red wine when you're cooking a fresh meal for your family. So there's lots of ways you can think of bundling temptations with something that otherwise would feel a little bit like drudgery and turning that chore into something you actually look forward to in a source of pleasure in the bargain. Perfect. Now there's something that that always sort of sort of nags at me when I am thinking about temptation bundling and I'm hoping you can help help me tease it apart. Um so you're pairing these two things together and um it seems like you're always getting a positive net impact from you know the the thing that you enjoy and the thing that you don't enjoy. Why is it that that you see this directionality that you don't see like okay now that I've uh, brought my audiobook to the to the gym why don't I like my audiobook less why is it that I like the, you know why am I more likely to go to the gym rather than less likely to uh, to enjoy the audiobook it's a fantastic question and I, by the way I suspect we could construct some bundles where that would be the nature of the combination right where they're really just working together. <laughs> Yeah, like peanut butter and tuna instead <laughs> oh of peanut butter yeah. and jelly, right? Like we can we can take two things that are good and make them worse by combining <laughs> them. So it's certainly true that you could construct bundles that would be value destroying. I think the examples I give are of bundles where this works because it's a guilty pleasure. And so you can kill the guilt by combining it with the chore, because you see now you're actually getting value out of the thing that would otherwise feel a little bit overly indulgent to enjoy. And that's the magic. If you get, if you create the right temptation bundles is, is uh, it's something where the two things truly can go together and be complementary. Uh, but certainly not all bundles you would envision would have that feature. And, and, and so it is important to the benefit of this tool to find such a bundle. A lot of people ask me about, you know, can you come up with a temptation bundle for increasing the joy I feel when I'm trying to eat healthier? And and I actually haven't come up with many great temptation bundles there. And it might be be because a lot of them would be value destroying. So I, I actually, I love your question. And I think the right answer is really, it's just that the ones that work and that have these magic features are the ones we focus on and the ones we use. But certainly there are temptation bundles we could design that would be pretty useless and value destroying. Yeah. I mean, on the food front, maybe it's, you know, you want to eat carrots. So you pair it with hummus and like, would that count as a temptation bundle? Like still kind of healthy, Yeah, yeah but no, delicious. Absolutely. That's absolutely. Yes, absolutely. That's actually a really nice way of putting it. It's like, but that that's two things in the same domain. It's true, it's true. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe yeah, it doesn't yeah. count. Sure, that's a, that's, sure, I'll call that a temptation bundle. I'm only allowed to have hummus if I'm eating it with carrots. No pita with You're my right, hummus. Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and kind of coming up a little, come back to a little bit to personalization, it's always like the holy grail question in some ways is to better understand, you know, for whom might a temptation bonding strategy would be more effective versus a <laughs> commitment device. Or you, you mentioned a little bit within commitment devices that some people might prefer more kind of hard, like more uh, stricter versus lesser strict. But do you have any kind of working hypothesis around like who, who these different, especially those two caters to more better or, or worse? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. You know, in our work on temptation bundling, and this is very post hoc. We did not expect it. So it 
it might not replicate, but I want to, I, I do think it's worth mentioning because that's really interesting observation in our data. We saw this very large benefit to people who were particularly over subscribed in their lives. They had too much, you know, lots more going on. The busiest people in our study ended up getting the most out of temptation bundling. And I thought that was an interesting observation that if life is overwhelming and you're trying to make time for something like exercise, then it may be particularly important to have strategies like a temptation bundle that help squeeze it in, that you know help you get those complementarities. You get your relaxation and your rejuvenation and your exercise all in one package. And, and that was particularly useful. In terms of commitment devices, uh, I think, you know, we know that they're more useful for people who struggle more with self-control, but that would be true for temptation bundling, I would expect as well, right? That if you don't have a self-control challenge, why would you need any of these tools? Of course, most of us have self-control challenges, but maybe not in every walk of life, right? So Angela Duckworth, who I mentioned earlier, has taught me a lot about self-control. She studied grit, which is a closely related construct. And what one thing that, again, I have been trained mostly in thinking about People is all, all the same, but she's learned a bit more about individual differences. And she's taught me that most people are actually quite different in their levels of self-control across different domains. So someone might be really, really self-controlled in one part of life. And let me give myself as an example, since I know myself better than anyone else. I have great self-control when it comes to my work. I can resist temptation and focus on the most pressing priorities and and deprioritize other things. I, I'm, I'm quite good, I think, when it comes to productivity and self-control. I don't have particularly good self-control when it comes to what I eat. I definitely don't have it when it comes to anger management. <laughs> I'm, I do not I'm like believe quick that. to yell at my <laughs> I'm much too quick to yell at my five and a half year old. And also in general, just like emotion regulation is not my strength. So, but that's normal. Um, and once you recognize what are the parts of life where you are more versus less self-controlled, that's also going to tell you where you might get more or less value out of some of these tools. I don't think I need commitment devices when it comes to my work. I, well, actually, I, I use soft commitments, but I don't need to set fines and so on when it comes to my work. But when it comes to other things, I, I often need harder commitments. So I also think that's worth keeping in mind. It's not just between people. It's also within person across domains. And, and we, we tend to differ across domains within person almost as much as we differ from other people on average and self-control. It's another thing Angela taught me that I found really fascinating. Yeah, I think that's a great, great, um, you know, thing to to think about and remember because it's, yeah, we've obviously seen that in different, you know, I think maybe you would know more, Aline, but with Dan's work on honesty and dishonesty, kind of similar thing in that people think that people are either dishonest or honest, but in the same way, I think, you know, people are perfectly good at self-control or, or worthless it's more perhaps more truth in the most cases that we're all <laughs> somewhat uh you know dishonest or honest depending on the situation and, and context and and uh yeah like you say so i think that's a really really nice uh thing to remember i guess i want to take us back to something you mentioned early on which is vaccine interventions so you mentioned a a text-based intervention but also did uh, a lottery based one with the Philly lottery. Could you tell us a little more about that? And if you have any results yet, I'm not sure if there's anything uh, you know. Do you want me to tell you about just the sweepstakes or do you want me to tell you about both? Yeah, actually both. But maybe we could start with the Philly Philly one. With the sweepstakes, sure. It would be interesting yeah, to we compare don't, So I'll, yeah. I'll start with the bad news, which is we don't, we don't have results that I can share yet. <laughs> but I can tell you about the design and the, um, the impetus, which I think was kind of exciting. Um, this project actually started in started before the pandemic was really on our shores. Um, I had breakfast with Richard Thaler in a restaurant at a hotel on March first of twenty twenty, and we were talking. Wow. You know, we didn't hug. We like fist bumped or something instead because we were just starting to talk about. Well, this could be coming. Um, it was like 15 days before it really hit. And it was that silly point where everyone was hand sanitizing, but breathing the same air without concern. So we were actually talking not about the coronavirus, but about a project we were already plotting to try to figure out how can we encourage more people to get flu vaccines, which is 
really important topic that we were interested in long before we knew how critically important vaccines would be. They're pretty important for flu, but obviously even more important for COVID-19. And at that breakfast, Richard Thaler said, you know, I really think we should be giving people scratch off lottery tickets when they get a flu shot and make sure that they know that they can get those. They're so attractive and appealing and people overweight small probabilities. And I just think it's it would be a great strategy, much better than hand, handing them cash. It's fun. It's exciting. It, it might not have some of the negative implications cash do of sort of I'm paying you to offset some kind of risk that I'm asking you to take. And I said, that's a great idea. And so we should really, we should do that. And we started trying to get that going. And then, of course, the pandemic happened. (laughs) And uh, in April of this year, I got an email from Richard Thaler looping me into a conversation he was having with Danny Kahneman and um, Maya Bar-Hillel about whether or not Israel, which was starting to, at that point, run out of eager vaccine adopters whether Israel should try to use a lottery in order to encourage the last group of people to get vaccinated. We all agreed that that seemed like a really good idea, that the scratch off for ticket could be deployed there. Maybe that was the perfect place to do it. We weren't sure it should even be a test. We figured, let's just help the world. This seems like a good idea and it could be evaluated before, after, which isn't perfect, but at least we'd then see, is this a useful tactic? Because we knew the rest of the world would hit the point that Israel had already reached. So we scrambled a little and tried to get something off the ground and failed. And then somehow that evolved into doing this project with the city of Philadelphia. About a month and a half later, we were able to team up with them. And at that point, the same problem had hit states and cities in the United States we were hitting a wall on vaccine demand and and needed to figure out what to do. So we teamed up with a bunch of great people. So Kevin Wolf from the Center for Health Incentives and Behavioral Economics at Penn and Allison Buttenheim, who studied lottery incentives before as well. And then um, Angela Duckworth and other folks at Behavior Change for Good Initiative. It sort of became Devin Pope at the University of Chicago. Yeah, no, it's been an amazing team. And also um, Linia Gandhi, who I think you've maybe had on this podcast. Mm. Am I remembering that correctly? Have you had her here? No, but we'd love to. Not yet. Not yet, but potentially in the future. She's great. She's she's magnificent. So we just sort of had a dream team of people who all, of course, raised their hand and said, how can I help? And we co-designed this sweepstakes with the city of Philadelphia that we hoped would use the best principles from behavioral science to move the needle on vaccination, pun intended. The the features that are a little bit different, you know, if we could have teamed up with some of the states that announced lotteries, we probably would have. But uh, we were working in parallel and putting out feelers and, and the city came forward and said they'd be eager to work with us if we deployed our own sweepstakes. So it's actually a sweepstakes from the University of Pennsylvania, not from the city of Philadelphia. They're just our partner on it. And we have some features that are different than other sweepstakes that are being run around the country. One of the important features is that we're running a regret lottery, which builds on this insight that if you know we might call you and say, you're a $50,000 winner, were you vaccinated? And you might have to say, no, I wasn't vaccinated and turn down that money. That could be really motivating to people. The anticipated regret they would feel if they got that call and had to decline might move some extra people to go get a vaccine. And so the way that's different is most lotteries that are being run around vaccination, the only eligible people to get the phone call are the people who've gotten the vaccine. And in our case, you might get the phone call and have to decline. So that's a distinction from what else is going on. And the other is actually that it's geographically concentrated. And I don't just mean it's only in the city of Philadelphia, we're actually doing our sweepstakes in a way where half of the winners in each drawing come from a designated zip code that we announced two weeks in advance. Mm. So a very narrow geography where we're concentrating most of the prizes. Philadelphia has 46 zip codes. So when we pick one and say you'll get half, yeah. we're often, you know, the odds go up by 50 to 100, depending on the exact size. And we focused on a set of priority zip codes that have low vaccination rates. And we draw one at random two weeks before each sweepstakes drawing happens. And we announce this is the zip code that's getting the vastly multiplied odds of winning in the upcoming drawing. So there's three zip codes that have ended up being selected. And that allows us not only to evaluate 
the impact of the sweepstakes as a whole on the city versus surrounding counties, but also to look at which of those zips are drawn. And in that two-week period, do we have a particular lift on that zip code compared to a surrounding one? So it, it allows for a nicer evaluation and to see do concentrated rewards of this type add value. So we actually should have results by maybe by the time this episode airs, we will have results. Awesome. We'll link it for sure. Yeah, 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 in early August. Um, and we we have I have we've analyzed some preliminary data, but I'm not at liberty to share the results yet. Ah, so you know the answer, but you can't tell yeah. us. <laughs> I know an early answer. It's not finished yet, but but I have a hint as to how it's going. I was going to ask you to try and predict what you think. Ah, uh, uh, but it would be cheating if I tried to predict. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think we might have to link as well the other intervention with text messages. Uh, we'll make sure to link them in the show notes because that's a really interesting one as well. Because we have to move to an important final segment, which is something we call underrated versus overrated. So it's a kind of quick fire round of questions where we're going to list a couple of things and you can just tell us if you think it's overrated or underrated. Okay, I'll do my best. All right, I'll go first. Devil's Tennis. <laughs> overrated. <laughs> I I was a single specialist. I never I never could get comfortable at the net. And so and you get less exercise in doubles. So that's why I think it's overrated. Oh, what about text messages? Underrated. We've seen that you can really change behavior with text messages and I think we probably should be using them even more as a vector for interventions and particularly in settings where a simple reminder can make a big difference. How about audiobooks? Underrated. I love audiobooks. It's so wonderful because also they're perfect for bundling with <laughs> any other activity. <laughs> and you get to hear if the author reads it. Really, you get into their mind a little bit deeper than you would if you were reading the book to yourself. You can hear where they put emphasis, what excites them most, I think, Audiobooks are wonderful. Yeah, I do appreciate that. Yeah, I was going to say, full disclosure, I've been listening to <laughs> How to Change an Audiobook, but I listen to audiobooks on like 2.5 speed. Another benefit. Uh, so, so it's a little bit weird to talk to you now where... <laughs> you're, At regular speed? Yeah. You're like, God, you're so slow. <laughs> she's speaking so slowly. <laughs> yeah. Does she think there's something wrong with me? Yeah, she's so slow. That's hilarious. Exactly. Any, any favorite audiobook that you have listened to so far in the summer? Oh my gosh, that's such a tough question. Well, actually, I will say I haven't been listening to audiobooks as much this summer as I've been um, listening to podcasts more this summer. Um, I was I was thinking more like a favorite audiobook of all time, which sure. is a weird... even better. I think my favorite audiobook of all time, this is going to sound so strange, maybe, because um, I love Stumbling on Happiness. I thought Dan Gilbert's mm. reading of it was magnificent. And, uh, you know, it's, of course, a wonderful book. It's also, it's, it's sort of an unfair comparison. I listened to it when I was a graduate student. And as a result, I, my, I was still really naive about so much of the research that was covered. Maybe if I'd listened to it five years later, I would have said, I read all those articles. But I was a, an engineering and business PhD student. And my background was also in engineering. So everything was new to me. And it was, it was beautifully read and uh so well written as well and it was all new stuff it was just fantastic so that's probably my favorite audiobook i've ever listened to <laughs> wow awesome. i i just had the strangest flashback and you're not even gonna believe that this is true um but this is a, this is a true story i listened to stumbling on happiness on the treadmill as an undergrad <laughs> like, this is this is when i heard that book and um yeah i sh i share your opinion <laughs> Yay, it's great for temptation it's bundling. Amazing. I'm so happy I got to remember that this even happened in your presence and also tell you. <laughs> it's amazing. I will say I, I listened to it while I was a graduate student at Harvard and I was I had a long commute. So I would listen to it like while I was walking. I had to walk from where I lived over to the business school, and it's about 30 minutes back to the computer science department where I would take classes. So I was walking across campus and I remember actually meeting Dan Gilbert for the first time at you know some event on campus while I was in the middle of the book and I was so starstruck and like nervous to even speak because <laughs> I think he thought I was pretty weird at the time. <laughs> I was. Uh, awesome. So uh, 
talking about temptation and bundling, uh, Shonda Rhimes TV shows. Oh, meaning which is my favorite? You all, is that the question? Yeah, or I guess which we, is the best for temptation bundling? I think it's clear they're underrated. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say underrated, overrated. Yeah, oh, exactly. oh, 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 sorry. I was like, wait. I was like, yeah. Ooh, this is a hard question. Just underrated or overrated? Okay, sorry. Let me try that again. <laughs> underrated. Shonda Rhimes TV shows are so good for temptation bundling. They're really, I think, their formula like Scandal and Bridgerton. They're cliffhangers. They're fast-paced. They're fabulous. Awesome. I feel like we have two, for anyone who hasn't done a temptation bundling before, we have two now very good avenues to start. Shonda Rhimes yes. or, or Dan Gilbert. Yeah. Depends on the nerd quotient. <laughs> I probably <laughs> would say most people should start with Shonda Rhimes and then move to Dan Gilbert if they really get into behavioral science. <laughs> All right. How about New Year's resolutions? I'm going with underrated again. I actually, I think, you know, because so many fail, they get a bad rap. But if we use good behavioral science, more could succeed. And if you don't get started, you can't succeed. Nice. What are books as a tool for behavior change? Am I allowed to say the jury is out? I don't know if they're underrated or overrated. Angela and I have been talking lately about (laughs) this a lot, actually, and thinking maybe we should do some random assignment studies because we all, we invested so much time in writing these books in the hope that they would be useful to people. And we have no actual evidence on whether they, whether we wasted our breath. You know, we know we get these emails from people who said, oh, it was wonderful. It changed my life. And also PS from readers who were like, this is a bunch of trash. Those are mostly wow. the ones who write the Amazon reviews rather than the emails. And I appreciate that those people don't write me hate mail, but, but you get both. And we have no idea. I would, I would love to know. I, and I would waste less of my life and others would too, if we knew or waste, you know, yeah, we would, we would, maybe we would write more books if we found out it really worked or unless if we discovered it was garbage. I'd like to know. How about gamification? Overrated. Definitely think that's overrated, uh, particularly in organizations. And that was one of the things I wrote about and uh, how to change is that there's evidence from research by Ethan Mollick and Nancy Rothbard, both from Wharton, that in fact, this can even backfire when it feels like forced fun. And it's often not done in a way that is effective. What about nudging? Yeah. You know, I think it's still underrated. And I'm frustrated, particularly that in this pandemic, behavioral science was often a last resort. Like the, the first messaging, the first attempts were put together by non-behavioral scientists at encouraging different behavior changes. And then people came to us when they realized, wow, that didn't work as well as we wanted it to. And if we could have been involved from the get-go, I think we would have had more positive impact and seen better outcomes. I think nudging should still be used more as a first resort, not a last resort by policymakers. Yeah. Being lazy. Underrated. Yeah. Laziness is a as I say in the book, I, I remember titling a chapter laziness and I thought people would be annoyed that I was insulting them. So I wanted to be really clear that I actually think laziness is generally a good feature because it means we're efficient. We don't waste our time. And I think we were designed as lazy creatures. Well, you know, by evolution right. <laughs> for good reason. So I'm a fan of laziness. And once you recognize it in yourself, I actually think you can use it for good as opposed to as an obstacle. Awesome. And a little bit on that topic as kind of a last question. By the way, well done on the overrated, underrated. You did really well. Except uh, for the part where I forgot what I was doing and I was like, on the red show. My right. <laughs> I wanted that question. That flow, you know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I got to choose. Yeah, anyway, stumbling on happiness. You'd ask me a favorite of something else. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say like a last kind of question for you, which is you obviously focus in some ways with the book on problems that we all face and, and kind of starting with that and kind of seeing, okay, what can be ways for me to solve these problems? And and uh, like you say, I think you're quite open with this idea that none of us are perfect. We all have our struggles. So which of the seven uh, problems do you find you struggle with the most yourself? Impulsivity. That's an easy one. Impulsivity okay. is my, it's my 
but my worst vice, but I have all the problems. <laughs> <laughs> that's why that's why I study this. It's me search <laughs> as well as research. But yeah, impulsivity is the one that hits me the hardest and that I work the most to overcome strategically. And what has been your favorite kind of solution to in some setting mitigate your impulsivity? Trying to make it fun to do what is actually good for me in the long run. That's my number one most used tactic and that you know, temptation bundling and also just choosing what I do based on what I find enjoyable. So I'll be more effective at it. Um, a la research from Ayelet Fishbach and Caitlin Woolley that another way to make it fun is through task selection, not just trying to in, enjoy, find a way to enjoy what you're already stuck with, but actually choosing, for instance, what I work on, who I work with in a way that ensures I'll wake up in the morning eager to do what's going to create value in the long run. Yeah. Do fun things. <laughs> Do things you find yeah. fun and where you can add value. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my advice yeah. is not that everyone should, you know, quit their day job and become a musician because that's what they love most. Yeah. But maybe <laughs> some people yeah. should, but, but rather, you know, within the realm where you feel you can be effective and have most impact choosing a path that mm. you will enjoy. I love that. Well, on that note, this was a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun. <laughs> I hope you guys also had a lot this of fun. This was a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. It was a treat. And thank you for the work you both do to help disseminate behavioral insights. I really appreciate it. I haven't gotten to tell you that in person. <laughs> well, for sure, that goes without saying that we're super appreciative of, of you, you writing this book, but also you know all the work you've been doing before the book as well. And uh, obviously, it's all been the book of the month and have a weekly I assume that everyone here already has a copy, maybe on their desk that they should read right now, but couldn't recommend it enough. Uh, thanks again so much for joining us today. And, and again, congrats on a wonderful book. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. And I look forward to our next conversation. Thanks for listening to the Behavioral Design Podcast from Habit Weekly and the Center for Advanced Hindsight at Duke University. Make sure to subscribe to the show. And if you like what we're doing here, don't forget to share it with your friend, a colleague, your mother, anyone you can think of. Our fantastic show music is Murgatroyd by the wonderful Dave Pizarro. And thanks to the team at Orange Wall Media for the production of this episode. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with another deep dive into all things behavioral design. Oh, to Murgatroyd. Awesome. Uh, we can wrap up there, but I just want to say one fun fact that I just forgot that I was going to mention. Uh, I actually live on Odenplan, if you... <laughs> no way! <laughs> yes. So that was the funniest part when I was like listening to you and it's like you're starting referencing Odenplan all of a sudden. I was like, what? You know, it was quite funny. That is amazing. Um, Did you experience yeah. the piano stairs? You know, sadly, I moved like literally three months after. So I heard about it. I saw some remnants of it, but I never got to play it, the piano. Bummer. That is a so. bummer. So yeah, sorry. But they, they still look like a piano, uh, those staircases. Oh, but they're not actually. They just real took piano, away so that. They have that. <laughs> yeah. Sort of cruel. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs>